Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know, the Easter season, it's a wonderful time to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because He lives, so can we, as the song said. Because He lives. What a wonderful promise that is. And you know, not everyone has that promise. There are people that don't necessarily believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at some things in the Bible today that I hope will help give us assurance and challenge those who who don't believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and look at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which, that's the gospel, by which ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Now that verse, at the end of verse 2 it says, unless ye have believed in vain. You know, there are some people that just say, yeah, I believe, but it's not a heartfelt belief. The Bible says, with the heart you believe, and with the mouth you confess. If you're just saying something that you don't believe, that is believing in vain. That's what the passage is talking about. Verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And He was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. And that He was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, He was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Dear Heavenly Father, help us as we look at some things from your word and from history and from uh, the, the testimony of those who have gone before. Lord, I pray that we're encouraged today, but most of all, we want you to receive glory. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and dying on the cross. But more importantly, thank you for rising from the dead. And that's what gives us our hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We're starting a series today on why believe. Why believe. We live in a day when people are really challenged about whether or not the Bible is true. And there are four questions that if we answer these four questions in the affirmative, then Christianity is true. And we'll begin studying those four questions next week. The first of the questions is this, is truth knowable? The second, does God exist? If God doesn't exist, then Christianity doesn't matter. So is truth knowable? Does God exist? Then are miracles possible? You know that a lot of people struggle with the Bible because of the miracles. And we're going to look at that question, are miracles possible? And then in the last session, we will look at, is the New Testament reliable? Can you trust the Bible? So This is, we're going to be looking at some evidences for the resurrection today, but in those next four Sundays, we're going to look at some really interesting truths, and I I think that you'll be encouraged by it. Now, I ran into a problem this morning. I have, my outline here is this, it's a rose, a rose, and that's accepted facts, reasons to believe those facts, obstinate infidel attacks, the Savior's suffering, and eternal consequences. And what I realized is there's no possible way I can give you all this information because many of you ladies have a ham in the oven or a turkey or something, and you all know where I live. So we are going to try and shorten this up a little bit. That was a great whistle right there, wasn't it? 
We paid for dentistry for my children. We couldn't afford it for me, and so we have these sounds that come out periodically. <laughs> so we have th this acrostic arose is what we're going to look at. We have evidences for every one of these points, and we're going to look at some of those evidences briefly, and maybe in another setting we'll flesh it out a little bit more. But I, I like to give things to you in a way that you can remember it. So our famous Easter song is Up From the Grave He Arose. So this is our acronym, Arose. The first of these is accepted facts. There are five accepted facts. What these facts are, these are things... They were compiled by a man named uh, Gary Habermas, and he studied 3,400 Bible scholars. Can you imagine? How many of you didn't know there were 3,400 Bible scholars? You didn't have any idea. Now, let me just say this. I do, I struggle with the term Bible scholar because a scholar is someone who's mastered their subject, and no one has ever mastered the Scriptures, amen? But these are people that are very learned in the Word of God, and here's the interesting thing about it. These are people that some of them are Christians, some of them are evangelicals, they would believe the way that we do. Some of them are not saved at all. They don't believe the, the Bible is a supernatural book, they don't believe any of that. And all of these 3,400 New Testament scholars, believers and unbelievers, the vast majority of them, and by vast majority we're talking 70-80% of them, agree with these five facts about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are provable historically. Now, I understand there are people who don't believe in the inspiration of the Scriptures. They don't believe that God supernaturally gave His words. Now, here at Grace Baptist, we do. But you might be here this morning, and you don't. You haven't come to the place where you trust the Old Testament and the New Testament writings. That's okay. Many of the people who agree with these facts don't believe that the Bible is necessarily true, and yet they all agree that these are historical facts. These actually took place. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Amen. That it doesn't take faith at all to believe these five facts. And the first is that Jesus died by crucifixion. That Jesus Christ died by crucifixion. Now, crucifixion was a very horrible death. Cicero was a Roman general, and he's, he's famous. I know that many of you have heard of Cicero, Illinois, or any of those places, named after this Roman general. And this Roman general, Cicero, he said, it would be better if a Roman never even mentions the word crucifixion, let alone suffers it. That's how horrible it was. Crucifixion, according to Josephus, Josephus was a first century Roman Jewish general. Imagine a Jewish man who was a Roman general. He was a historian. He wrote about the Christians around 70 AD and how uh, the Romans just hated the Christians. They hated the Christians, and they hated the Jews around Jerusalem. And what Josephus says is that these Roman soldiers, they felt imprisoned by having to guard these Christians that had been captured. And so what they did was they nailed them in various positions to any place they could find to nail them. This was something that the Romans did to make a spectacle, to say, if you follow these people, this is what's going to happen to you. Tacitus wrote about, was, a, was another Roman historian. He wrote about the crucifixion of Christians in Nero's court. Nero, remember, Nero burned down Rome, and so he blamed it on the Christians. And he crucified Christians all over the, the city of Rome, and he actually lit up his gardens 
by having crucified Christians there, he put a, a flammable material on them and lit them on fire. That's what Nero did to the early Christians. Crucifixion was something that happened regularly in that period of time. But Tacitus, as he is describing what happened under Nero, he says this, that those Christians were crucified in the same manner that their leader, Jesus Christ, was. And so these are extra-biblical, that is, that they are outside of the Bible. These are contemporary, uh, historical references to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is a, an historical fact. One of the things that's interesting about infidels, and we'll look at infidel attacks in a minute, people who they hate the Bible and they try to say that it's not true, is they won't accept anything from it. They apply a different standard to the Bible than every other piece of ancient literature, and we have better evidence for the preservation of the New Testament and the Old Testament than any other historical documents of that era. We have better evidence, and yet these same infidels will trust the history of, say, Julius Caesar or the writings of Plato, Socrates at all. So we understand that Jesus, this is an accepted fact, that Jesus Christ died by crucifixion. Number two, the second fact that all, virtually all historians, let me say this, not everybody, you can't get everybody to agree on anything. Is that right? So we could say, we are all sitting in chairs. There's going to be someone who says, this isn't a chair. So we can say virtually all New Testament scholars agree. There are a group of people called the Jesus Seminar, and I mentioned them in our class this morning. The Jesus Seminar are people who don't believe virtually anything from the Bible, and they reject historical evidence that would undermine them. So they aren't considered credible even by lost, unsaved, secular historians. They don't trust these people because they have a bent against just clear historical evidence. So let's, that, that was just a parenthesis. So the accepted facts. Jesus died by crucifixion. And then secondly, Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and appeared to them. Now notice the way that this is worded. They're not saying, these historians are not saying that it's proven that Jesus rose from the dead. But it is proven that his followers, his disciples, believed that he did. Was that fair? you all agree with that? His disciples did believe that he rose from the dead. And we know that because there is great historical evidence for the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The third is this. The church persecutor Paul was suddenly changed. The church persecutor Paul was suddenly changed. He was Saul of Tarsus. And he is historically known as a persecutor, as a Jewish persecutor of Christians. And yet, something happened on the Damascus Road, and he met Jesus Christ, and he was immediately changed from a persecutor to a Christian, and one who ultimately died defending the faith that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. One thing that's very interesting, we'll, well, we'll get to that in a second. For the skeptic James, the brother of Jesus, was suddenly changed. The skeptic James. Now remember, Jesus Christ's family, his brothers and sisters, did not believe that he was God. They thought he was crazy. In a passage in Mark, it says, uh, they, they sought to lay hands on him or lay hold on him because he is beside himself. That's what they said. Isn't that interesting? What changed? Why was James willing to be beheaded 
Well, he met his risen half-brother. He saw him die, and he saw him after he had risen from the dead. And it's a proven fact that James, the brother of Jesus, became a leader in the early church, and in 2012, they found the ossuary of James. What is an ossuary? In Jerusalem, in Israel, the way that they would bury people is they would have family crypts. And if you go to the Mount of Olives and you look down at the Mount of Olives, you'll see all these sepulchers. They're places where bodies are buried. The only problem is you can only fit a few bodies in one of these boxes. And so what they do is they take them out of the sepulcher after they're desiccated and all they have left are their bones. They take those bones and they put them in small boxes, about this big. I've seen them. They're called ossuaries. And in 2012, they found the ossuary of James, the brother of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? And it's proven, it's dated to be back to the time when Jesus would have lived, and it is identified as the brother of Jesus. And one of the facts of history that the majority of Bible scholars and historians agree upon is that somehow James, who was a skeptic, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, was willing to die for the fact that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Then, number five, the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. Do you know the best way to have stopped Christianity in its early days? Show the body. Show the body. And that is the significance of the empty tomb. I had the privilege to be in Israel, and I went to the tomb of Jesus, and I can attest it is empty. <laughs> He's not there. And here's what's wonderful. In that first century... All right. Just shortly after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that area became a church where early Christians would worship. And they dug out a baptistry there where they would take people down after they were saved and immerse them, baptize them. And there's a cross carved into the wall right outside where Jesus Christ would have lain. Now, here's the thing. There, there are so many proofs that the tomb was empty, starting with there was a Roman guard posted, a Roman guard, and they couldn't have gotten past them. And then the Jewish leaders tried to pay people to lie about where the body was. And then those who were hiding and afraid, they were locked in the upper room because Jesus Christ had died. Peter had denied him. Suddenly, all of those people were willing to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. Would they have been willing to do that if Jesus had not risen. Now, let me make something very clear. People die for lies all the time. These, these Muslims that blew themselves up in Brussels just this past week, they believe that they're going to get something in paradise for killing themselves. All right? So they died for a lie. This is something completely different. If Adam Clutter died... And I knew Adam. Well, I do know Adam. I know Adam. And he dies. Right? Now, how many of you have known someone who died? Would you raise your hand so you know somebody who died? Have you seen them lately? No. No. I asked a funeral director one time when I was in high school. We had a funeral director that came to our church in New York. And I said, have you ever had one of them get up? I was a senior in high school. No, I said, have you ever had one of them sit up? And he said, if I did, it would be the last one. Right? So here's the deal. Suppose that Adam died, and I said he rose from the dead. Well, what if it got to the point 
where I was going to have to die for that and be tortured for it? Would I be willing to die for something that I knew to be false? We're not talking about someone who believes something they have been told that's false. We're talking about someone who knows specifically that that claim is false. Would thinking people be willing to do that? I would say no. I would say no. So what happened were these people who knew Jesus Christ, they knew that he had died, they knew that people among them had put him in the tomb and that he rose from the dead. If that was a lie, they would not have been willing to die for it. The empty tomb is one of the greatest evidences for Christianity. Isn't that a blessing? The empty tomb. Are you glad it's empty? Me too. Me too. All right. So, those are the accepted facts. What are the reasons that we ought to believe those facts? I think I've given you some of them already. Reasons to believe those accepted facts. Gary Habermas, who put this list together, he calls it the minimal facts approach. And he says this, This approach considers only those data that are so strongly attested historically that they are granted by nearly every scholar who studies the subject, even the rather skeptical ones. So all of those facts, those five facts that I just gave you, they are attested by scholars, by history, by historians as true. Do you know what that can give us today? Confidence that what the Bible has said is true. We can believe it. We can trust it. Other reasons to believe. Pow! You ready? The testimony of Paul. The testimony of Paul. This is an interesting thing. Scholars identify the writings of Paul as some of the best attested writings in history. So the book of Romans is considered one of the greatest argumentative books ever written, and it is attested to Paul in the 60s A.D. Right? So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'll show you something. Oh, you know what? Let's do this. That'll be under my second point. Testimony of Paul. And, and remember, the testimony of Paul is separate from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's separate testimony by one of the best educated men of his day, one of the most famous men of his day. That's the Apostle Paul. The second, so pal, Paul, the oral tradition that passed through the early church. You know, we are blessed to live in a time when just about everybody we know can read. How many of you, though, in the past, had family members who never learned to read? Would you raise your hands? You have family members who never learned to read. That's pretty rare today, unless there's some kind of a learning disability. Now, listen, don't be embarrassed by that. I obviously have a learning disability. It's ADD. I struggle to pay attention. You know how many kids with ADD it takes to change a light bulb? Where's my bicycle? I can't find it. Where's my... That's my life. So the, I understand learning disabilities. Man, when I was in school, I hated school. I'd sit there and somebody droning on, and I'm looking out the window wanting to bang my head against the wall. I hated it. So I understand learning disabilities. But today, honestly, in, in our culture, obviously there are places in the world where this would not be true, but in our culture, most people know how to read. Would you all agree with that? But at the time of the early church, most of the people did not know how to read. They didn't know how to read. And so there were statements of faith that were formulated in a, in, a, in a manner that was easy to remember. And there's one of those listed for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All right? And we see it. Look at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. Now, what's the gospel? It's identified here in the text. 
The gospel is not, well, come to Grace Baptist Church, give us as much money as you can, and you can go to heaven. That's not the gospel. Come to Grace Baptist Church and you give me enough money, I'll heal you from your sicknesses. That's not the gospel. Come to Grace Baptist Church and get baptized and you'll be able to go to heaven. That's not the gospel. All right? The gospel is identified here as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures. That's the New Testament gospel. But what's interesting about this is, look at what it says in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. Now look at what it says. Which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Look at verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. All right, so what he's going to do is tell them, I've already told you this, but I learned this from someone else. I received it from someone else. And look at what he says. That, middle of verse 3, that Christ died for our sins. Now, what does it say next? According to the Scriptures. And that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day. What's it say? According to the Scriptures. And it goes on and lists things. What this was, was an early statement of faith that the Apostle Paul is quoting. And we have evidence that that statement of faith goes back to within five years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How fantastic is that? Isn't that a blessing? So what you'll hear by infidels is what we have was written dozens or hundreds of years after the fact and was changed many times. Folks, that is simply not true. We have the authority of the Apostle Paul, whose writings are attested to have been written in the mid-60s. And then we have a statement in the writings of the Apostle Paul that we can trace back to within five years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's awesome. You can trust the Bible. And there are other uh, passages in the Bible that are like that. So the testimony of Paul, the oral tradition that passed through the early church. Now, I, I want to make sure that you understand what this is. There were things that people memorized and that they would say. See, what we memorize now is, for God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have... Did you hear how many people could say that? That's what happened in the early church. They would give people things like that to remember in ways that they could remember them, and they became songs and hymns and spiritual songs. That's what Ephesians is talking about. That's what Colossians is talking about. It's not say, make up a song. He's got the whole world in his hand. I'd like to teach the world. To... That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about taking biblical truth and putting it in a memorable format so that people could repeat it. And we find those statements later in the Holy Bible. God used that. It's a wonderful thing. That's what oral tradition is. And then the written works of the early church. The written works of the early church. We have people like Polycarp. Isn't that a great name? You glad? Well, I don't know. We've got a fisherman over here. Paul, you might have enjoyed being... You're going to name your son Polycarp, aren't you? Possibly. Many carp. I don't know if that's good. But this is, this is really important that we get this, that the writings of the, of the early church, they quote scriptures before people had scriptures in their hands. It's an amazing thing. You can reproduce your whole New Testament from the writings of what are called the church fathers. They're there. And those earliest church fathers identify the doctrine that the apostles would have preached. 
and they agree with it. So this is these are written testimonies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, accepted facts, reasons to believe those facts. And now let's look at the obstinate, infidel attacks. So in spite of these well-attested, not opinions, but facts of history, there are people who make statements like this. This is Richard Dawkins. The 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in miracles like the virgin birth without embarrassment. When pressed, many educated Christians are too loyal to deny the virgin birth and the resurrection. But but it embarrasses them because their rational minds know that it is absurd, so they would much rather not be asked. Now, that's, that's Dawkins' opinion, but it is clearly an uneducated opinion. Now, let me say this. He's very educated in his field. He knows way more about physics than I do. Okay? But, you know, honestly, this pulpit knows more about physics than I do. But he's very well educated in that area, but he obviously knows nothing about the history of Christianity. He knows nothing about the history of the transmission of the text or of the historical veracity or truth of the resurrection accounts. This statement is just proving his own ignorance. I want to read you something that's really interesting. He says this, but it embarrasses. So many educated Christians are too loyal to deny the virgin birth and the resurrection. I want to, I, I do want to say this, that here at Grace Baptist Church, We've got a lot of educated people. You know, someone said, where's Dr. Ree? I said, Dr. Ree, are you in here? He's over in the overflow? I'll look in the camera. Hi, Dr. Ree. <laughs> when um, we honored him the other day, I asked Dr. Ree to come up and, and pray. And Wade said, there's going to be about six Dr. Rees, because there were about six of his, three of his kids and his brother and all these doctors, Drs. Ree, would come up and speak. They're all educated. And they believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Dr. Edwards is here. He believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How many engineers? If you're an engineer, would you raise your hand? Hold, hold them up high. Be proud. Look around. These are educated people. And they believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a blessing? How many teachers do we have here? Raise your hand if you're a teacher. Any of you teachers believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I hope you all are educated because you are... Either that or you're uneducating our kids. No, you're educated people. You're educated people and you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is there anyone here in this room who has completed any particular level of education? Would you raise your hands? Would you raise your hands? All right. How many of you then believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? So what I would say to Dawkins is liar, liar, pants on fire. You may not like what we say, but the simple fact is there are many, many educated people. The last man to head the the Human Genome Project is a person who believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, what what Dawkins has, he is like Christopher Hitchens, where Frank Turek said, "Here's, here's, here's Hitchens and Dawkins' position. There is no God, and I hate him. That's how educated they are. It's very interesting. But listen to what... This is, uh, this is a, a, a fascinating idea. Many educated Christians are too loyal to deny the virgin birth and the resurrection, but it embarrasses them. Now, I've got to tell you, I have a little bit of education. It doesn't show very often, but I do have a little bit of education, and I am not embarrassed at all by the virgin birth or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where I find my hope. 
But this idea of some Christians being embarrassed by this is nothing new. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon wrote in the 1880s. He said this, Now, many men believe in the existence of God, but they do not love that belief. They know there is a God, but they greatly wish there were none. Some of you today would be very pleased. You would set the bells a-ringing if you believed there was no God. Why, if there were no God, then you might live just as you liked. If there were no God, then you might run riot and have no fear of future consequences. It would be to you the greatest joy that could be if you heard that the eternal God had ceased to be. But the Christian never wishes any such thing as that. The thought that there is a God is the sunshine of his existence. His intellect bows before the Most High, not like a slave who bends his body because he must, but like the angel who prostrates himself because he loves to adore his maker. His intellect is as fond of God as his imagination. Oh, he saith, my God, I bless thee that thou art, for thou art my highest treasure, my richest and my rarest delight. I love thee with all my intellect. I have neither thought nor judgment nor conviction nor reason, which I do not lay at thy feet and consecrate to thine honor. Amen. Now, as far as uneducated people, Charles Spurgeon could read a book this thick in one sitting. And then read another one. And then read another one. And then read another. He could read four full-size books in one sitting, and then quote from memory entire chapters after reading them once. He identified 11 trains of thought going on in his mind at one time. He is one of the greatest minds to ever live. He wrote a book every three months. He wrote 500 personal letters every week. He started an orphanage and a college and pastored one of the largest churches of his time. He was an amazing, amazing, amazing man. And with an intellect like that, he bowed his intellect before his maker. Amen. I think that Dawkins is wrong. Here's Lawrence Krauss. He said, there are no definitive eyewitness accounts of these events. That's not true. That's just not true. There are no definitive eyewitness accounts of these events. And in the case of the claimed resurrection, the scriptures were written decades after the claimed event. We've already dealt with that. And the different accounts are not even consistent. That's not true. Isn't it more likely that those who were preaching to convert fabricated a resurrection myth in order to convince those whom they were preaching of Christ's divinity. And what people like to, fly, to throw around is I could believe in a flying spaghetti monster. But let me tell you something. I might make up a flying spaghetti monster, but I'm not dying for him. I'm not willing to be tortured for him. It's just not true. Now, let me say this. Imagine that, um, that you're married. Hey, come, on, come here, Jake. Come help me. So here's Jake. This is my son. Can you tell? So, he loves doing that. He's taller than me. I have two sisters that are taller than me. God has a sense of humor. So, you know, I'm married. This is a buddy of mine. And I've got this girl that's awesome. She's really good looking. Man, she's so good looking. If she was a president, she'd be Abraham Lincoln. I'm just telling you. She is awesome. She, she is, I'm telling you, she's beautiful. Not only is she beautiful, she's smart. And she's fun to be with. She is awesome. And, and she's noticed you. Okay? Now, and, and many of us have friends like this. Imagine 
I've put before him the perfect girl for him to at least date and possibly marry. And he says, you know what? I'm not interested in getting married right now. Just, uh, not, hence the bow tie. Go ahead. Sit down. Um, so imagine, imagine that that's the case. How many of you know people like that? They're just not interesting. Where's Tom May at? I think he says his wife is under the house. That's what he says, which is interesting because they live on a slab. So I'm wondering what happened there. There's Tom back there. Just He hasn't been interested in getting married. That's Lawrence Krauss. That's Richard Dawkins. Regardless of the evidence that's there and the wonderful Savior that we can present, the amazing Creator, they're not interested in getting married. And remember what happens when a person gets saved. They become the bride of Christ. And so it doesn't matter the winsome presentation or the facts, the historic facts, the scientific facts, all of those things that are presented. They do not want to have anything to do with God. And I feel like Spurgeon identified that very well because they do not want someone to tell them what to do with their lives. Which is a good reason not to get married, right? Different, different story. Come on, that was funny. Um, so... These people did not fabricate a resurrection myth because people are not willing to create something and then die for it. So we have arose, the accepted facts, the reasons to believe those facts, the opposite and infidel attacks, and we have many things that we could say on these areas. Um, and then I think that this here, the Savior's suffering, this becomes something that is so real. Uh, I preached a message a few weeks ago on the problem of pain. And one of... Um, oh those who would reject Christianity or, or the Bible, one of their, their strongest arguments is the problem of pain. So if there is a loving and powerful God, why is there suffering in the world? Well, the Bible says it very clearly, for as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. The reason there's suffering in the world is because of sin. Now, what will happen is sometimes I saw Christopher Hitchens and others, they'll say you might, the arguments that you make, the creationist, the, the, the biblical apologist, the word apologist, it comes from the word apologia, which means defense, so a defender of Christianity. So a Christian apologist, here's what they would say about that, is the, the best that you can do is you can prove a, a deistic God, that is a God that, that set the world in motion and then remains aloof from it. The only problem is that is not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is that not only did the Creator enter His creation, but He entered it as a man and was willing to suffer on the cross and die for the sins of men. That's the God that we worship. Why did He die on the cross? Why did Jesus Christ die on the cross? Well, first of all, for our suffering. For our suffering. Jesus Christ did not remain aloof of our suffering. First, Jesus came to do one of the only things that can make a difference to someone in the midst of terrible suffering. To join them in their pain and suffer alongside them. I don't know about you, but man, when... I remember when our son Riley died. And that night at the house or at our apartment, um, one of my Bible professors, Keith Kaiser, he came over. And he read a passage from Scripture, and then he taught me a really valuable lesson in ministry. He just stood there and cried. He just stood there and wept. Why? Because there are no words. There are no words at that moment. When we were at the hospital and, and, and Riley passed away, 
Mike Fox, another pastor of the church that we went to, he was there with me and he knelt with me as Riley took his last breath and he just, all he did was he just wept. He just wept. And the Bible says in the shortest verse in the Bible, when Lazarus had died, his friend, even though he knew he was going to rise from the dead, he was going to raise him from the dead, he looked at the people around and saw their suffering and it says Jesus wept. You see, we don't have a God that remained aloof from our suffering. He entered into our suffering. What an amazing thing. Then, this is what Dawkins said, the idea of God sending His Son to die is vicious, sadomasochistic, and repellent. We should also dismiss it as barking mad. But for its ubiquitous, that means uh, just all over, many, it's, it's spoken many times, but for its ubiquitous familiarity, which has dulled our objectivity. If God wanted to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them without having Himself tortured and executed in payment? Why not? Because God is just. Because God is just. Sin must be paid for. These people who identify the laws of the universe, one of the laws of our universe is justice and that need for justice. We all have it. It's not barking mad. I think of the mother who the car goes into the water and her baby's in the back of the car in the car seat. And the mother can escape, but stays with her baby because she would rather die with her baby than have the baby die alone. Every firefighter, every paramedic knows of stories like that. Can I ask you a question? Is that mother barking mad or is that love? It's love. We all know the song, It Is Well With My Soul, and we know the story of Horatio Spafford, whose family, whose children died in a, a shipwreck. But the man who wrote the music to that song, his name was Philip P. Bliss, and he was taking a train from Buffalo to Chicago. And as the, 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 the train came into the Ashtabula, Ohio train station, it would cross a gully, a very deep gully. And as the train was coming across, it was sub-zero, the snow, there was snowing, it was a horribly cold day, the trestle, the train trestle collapsed and the train fell. And it was called the perfect catastrophe because people were dying from the fall, they were dying from the fire, and they were dying from the cold in the water. It was a horrible situation. And Philip Bliss got out, but his wife was inside. And he went back into the train and died with her that day. Was he barking mad? Was he crazy? Or was it love? You see, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why did Jesus die on the cross for us? Love. Love. And if love is barking mad, then I want a bunch of mad people around me who know how to love that way. John Stott said this. This is such a great statement. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. 
his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while I have had to turn away, and in imagination I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. So Jesus Christ died on the cross for our suffering, but not only for our suffering, he died for our sin. Jesus' ultimate reason for suffering and dying on the cross was to save humanity from our sin, to take our just punishment on himself so that we could be free. We justly deserve punishment. Because justice is a law of the universe. And justice requires a penalty must be paid. And Jesus Christ stepped in and paid my penalty. Oh, the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. Justice demands judgment. Love demands mercy. Only at the cross of Jesus do we find both. Only at the cross do we find perfect love and perfect justice in perfect intersection. That is why Jesus came. That is why Jesus was ready to die. Not only did Jesus Christ die for our suffering and for our sin, He died for our shame. I know that in this room and in the overflow and any who end up listening to this on the internet, many of us, as we look back at our lives, there are things that we cringe to even remember because of the shame that it brings. That's human existence. So Jesus Christ did not remain aloof from our shame. The God of the world was willing to hang naked on a cross and bear the ultimate reproach and shame of the world. That's our Savior. Jesus died for our suffering. He died for our sin. And He died for our shame. Why did He come to die? To suffer alongside us when we suffer. To offer forgiveness for our sins. And to offer freedom from our shame. What kind of a God would come and die? A God of love. A God of love. Not the, not the sadomasochistic God of Richard Dawkins, but the loving, mighty, powerful, saving God who created this world. That's the God that we worship on Easter. Not only a God of love, but a God that we can trust. So, arose the accepted facts, the reasons to believe those facts, obstinate infidel attacks, the Savior's suffering... But the the E is eternal consequences. You see, there are eternal consequences to whether or not we believe these things. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are eternal consequences to whether or not one accepts these facts. What are the eternal consequences? Well, the first is the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us hope for eternity. You know, uh, this is a kind of a tough time for me. Because my father passed away and now my mom and dad are both gone. But here's the hope. I get to see them again. 
I've often said the saddest thing a person can do is to have their family walk by their casket and not know where they are. So when I preached Dad's funeral, the casket was here. And it was really funny because the way the platform was, the people couldn't see me over the casket. So imagine us preaching Dad's funeral like this. Dad got me even at the end. And it was wonderful to say, I know where Dad is. That's our hope. That is our hope. Life is hard, man. There are many people here, you're suffering, you're going through hard times. Jesus Christ did not remain aloof from your suffering. He did not remain aloof from your pain. His family didn't accept Him. The whole world rejected Him. His hometown rejected Him. Everyone did but a few simple followers. And think about this. Within a hundred years of His death, the whole world was turned upside down. It brought an end to the Roman Empire. Christianity, the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it gives us hope for the future. I don't know what you're experiencing right now. I don't know what you're going through. But I know that there's a God who will go with you through it. He will carry you through it. He'll lead you through it. He'll love you through it. He'll comfort you through it. That's the God who suffered and then rose from the dead. That's the God that we worship. That's the consequence of the resurrection. And it's an eternal consequence. If Christ be not raised from the dead, the Bible says, we are of all men most miserable. But He did rise. And so we have hope. It's the hope of the Christian So, the first consequence is the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us hope for eternity. What about you? What about your eternity? Spend it with Jesus. The eternal consequences. If you're here today, have you believed? I'm not asking if you're familiar with the facts of the death, burial, and resurrection. I'm asking you if you've ever come to that Savior and said, Lord Jesus, I believe that you were born of a virgin, that you lived a sinless life, that you died on the cross that was meant for me, that you took my shame, my sin, my suffering, that you were buried, and that you rose from the dead the third day, and that you have applied that sacrifice to your account You see, salvation is not a process. It's a transaction. The Bible says, He who knew no sin, that's Jesus Christ, was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So it's like this. He who knew no sin, that's Jesus Christ. He's completely clean. I'm so covered up in this black sin that you can't even see me. When I get saved, when I ask Christ to save me and forgive me for my sin, What happens is a transaction takes place. That the sinless Savior takes my sin and gives me His righteousness. That's not a process. It's a transaction. It's an exchange that happens at a point in time. And ye hath He quickened, that means made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. It's something that happens in a moment. I'm not asking you. If you're familiar with the facts of the death, burial, and resurrection, I'm asking you if you've ever come to that Savior and said, Jesus, I'm a sinner. 
I can't save myself. I deserve hell. I believe that you're God and you did all of those things that are talked about in the gospel. But I'm going to hell. Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sin and be my Savior and take me to heaven. Have you ever done that? doesn't have to be those exact words. But have you ever done that? If you have not, then you're going to go to hell. And that's your choice. But if you will, then you'll go to heaven. And that's also your choice. Because the Bible says it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, God doesn't want to judge any of you. He wants you to be with Him in eternity. And that's why He came and died on the cross. Have you applied that to your account? I have. Man, I'm just a sinner. I don't deserve to stand up here and talk to you. I'm just a sinner. But that great God took on flesh and bones and died on the cross for me. And He did that for you too. He doesn't want you to be separated from Him forever. He wants you to be with Him. That's why He came. Do you remember what the Bible says His name was? And His name shall be called Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then do you know what happened? He became God in us. When we get saved, the Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell in us. And then He's with us for all eternity. Isn't that a blessing? I hope that you have that promise. If you don't, you can receive that hope. You can receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior today. Let's all bow our heads. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to help you do that today. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. You're making a decision between heaven and hell. You're making a decision between Jesus Christ and an eternity without Him. So if you're here today and you don't know, so if you were driving home today and you're in a car accident and were killed, and you're not sure whether you'd go to heaven or hell, you're not sure, just pray this prayer. But remember we said it earlier, don't believe in vain. You have to believe it in your heart. If you'll ask Jesus to save you, He will. Just ask Him right now. Just say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I know that my sin has separated me from you. I know that I deserve to go to hell. But I also believe that you're God. That you came and you were born of a virgin. That you, you're the only one who ever lived a perfect and sinless life. And then you died on the cross to pay for my sin. You were buried and you rose from the dead and that proves that you're God. Lord, right now, the best way I know how, I'm asking you to save me. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I want to be a child of God. I want to be saved. I'm not trusting church membership. Lord, I'm not trusting my good works. I'm not trusting my baptism. I'm only trusting in your death, your burial, and your resurrection. If you prayed that, I won't embarrass you. I'm the only one that's looking. I want to rejoice with you. If you've asked Jesus to save you today, would you raise your hand? If there's someone here who's done that today. Yes, I see that. Someone else? You asked Jesus Christ to save you today? Amen. Let's all stand together.